Welcome to this week's episode of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. I'm not going to have the normal intro because this is part two with Mr. Todd Jarrett. How you doing, Todd? Dave, what's happening, buddy? Hey, what's up, right? What do you got behind you? Uh, that's a Savage BA-10 in 6.5 Creed. All right. Well, that's look like a fun toy to play with. Is that a is that a loophole on top of there? It is not. It's an off-brand. I wish it was a Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love I love my bolt guns. So I've been in the, you know, I played around in the PRS world for a couple of years there. And so COVID hit, threw everything off, everything back on, you know, everybody's still trying to catch up on, on uh, you know, 2022 here, I think. So especially in the firearms industry. So yeah, we want to talk like about two years lost. Okay. So when we when we la last left, uh, we were saying we're going to pick up in the 90s because that's when you put it on everybody. So we finished talking about the 38 TJ. And oh, yeah. you had just won. Uh, your first Nationals was, now I'm trying to remember, it was 91 or 93? 91. 91. Okay, but you went professional in 95. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so I, I lost my job um, for the company I worked for. I was working for a company called American Tobacco Company in Richmond. And um, they were, you know, number one tobacco company for, you know, for, you know, 60, 70 years. And oh, they got, you know, taken under, you know, by different means. And over the years, Felt Morris and all these other companies. And so I ended up getting a, um, getting a severance package for, for like um for a whole year, so I was going like, wow, I, okay, I'm getting a service package for a year, and why don't I go ahead and give this thing a shot and try one year at it and see if I can make a run at it? And you know, you know, I'd already won one nationals at the time, and I was you know in the top five every year after that. And so um yeah, so I, I decided okay um you know at the time I was married and and I said I'll, I'll um you know go one year. And I'll see what happens. And then, so that was like the summer of um, summer of '95. So, it, or late summer of '95. Can't remember now exactly. So one thing led to another. That put me through the World Championship in '96, uh, the following year. So I end up um, after, you know, deciding. Okay, I'm, I'm dedicated. I'm gonna do one year of it, and see what happens. See if I can make a shot of it in the industry. And I was already had my feet wet in it already. I was already working for Pearl Ordinance. Um, I was on with Safari Land at the time, and I had a couple other few sponsors. And one thing led to another. Um, I, I was on the range every day. I was home eight hours a day on the range. Get up in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, drive fire for two hours, go to range, and um, bang out, you know, 600 to 1,000 rounds a day. Every day I was home and, you know, shooting matches everywhere I could go. And at the time, there were a lot of tournaments in the country that were that we don't see today. There was probably, I mean, we got the Dragon Cup, which is kind of there and double tap. And we got some other, you know, major matches that pop up across the country. Like Buckeye was up in Ohio here a few weeks ago. And so, but there was several major matches. There was one on the West Coast called um, uh, the Golden Bullet. Um, there was one called the Miller Invitational, which was up in New York. 
FIPT, which was the Florida Invitational, which went on, uh, came on in the 80s and went on for years. Um, the Golden Eagle was out, was out in Indiana. And so all these major matches that have been a staple in the um, in our core group of, of you know, of, of shooters in that period of time, uh, we were traveling, you know, basically almost, you know, once a month to a major somewhere. And then we were shooting area matches or section matches along the way. I think I was shooting pretty close to 35, 35 matches, 40 matches a year that were level twos or level threes along with the nationals. And then I was traveling overseas too. So um, I was going overseas and shooting, shooting some matches over there. So yeah, so it ended up being just a, a you know, um, you know, a travel mess. I mean, you spend you know four hours of your day trying to figure out hotel rooms and, um, you know, and and it wasn't like it is today where you can just jump on and, in, you know, and and you know no. get onto a match. No, it was cutting out your pages um, at front site, and that's what your match, um, you know, um, entry was. So you would cut those out. And then you would mail them in. So if you and I were friends and I was going like, hey, Dave, did you, did you get your front sight yet? And you're going like, yeah, I got mine like two days ago. But I haven't got mine yet. And this match fills up super quick. So uh, if you're not going, I'm going to drive up to your house and I'm going to cut it out of your front sight. And then I'm going to run to the post office and I'm going to overnight it to the match where I'm going to uh, across the country. So, you would, you know, you have a stamp, you know, and a ladder and all ready to go and have all your money, your basically a check was in there and you sent it off. And then you were hoping that within 30 days you would get a notice back in the mail that you've been approved for the match and you are in. And so um, the more you, the more, more matches you shot and the more times you went, you kind of got favoritism to the point where, okay, Todd, you shot the match the last four, five, six, seven years. Um, we're going to keep you in. But at the time, I would say one of the, probably the best matches in the country was called the Miller Invitational. And Miller Brewing Company actually um, sponsored the match. It was up in um, Fulton County, New York, and which, you know, we don't shoot a lot of majors in the state of New York anymore because of uh, all the gun laws. But it right. filled up. It was a, basically a four-day match. It also incorporated a three-gun match. And we had been – I had started shooting in Miller and probably – I want to say 88 um, in that period of time, but the matches were still prevalent and they were still popular at the time. So um, I, I was I was doing well and had, had won a lot of those tournaments uh, in the, in those in that period of time. And so for me, it was kind of like, okay, I'm I'm doing pretty good. And you know, at the nationals, I was I think in '95, I think I won every single major that I shot that year that I. Uh, participate in, um, but I didn't win in nationals. And so it was kind of disappointing for me. So um, one thing it, you have to understand, going to the nationals, there's a lot of luck in winning the nationals. You can, I mean, we was, uh, we was shooting a match the other day and I was telling, um, telling a friend of mine, I was kind of like, you can always determine who was going to be in the top three in any nationals after the first stage. It was just always a given. Um, if you just had a good run and you had good karma going on, you could just almost rest assured that, okay, that guy, that guy, and that guy are going to be in the top three. And you could almost count on every single year. And it was always, you know, you know, um, 
you know, Rob, Rob Latham and Jerry Barnhart, myself at the time, we were in that period of time, we were basically the top three guys at the nationals at any other majors. And that went on for probably almost 10 years, uh, all the way through the nineties. Um, and I, I forget who won in 1995 at the, at the Miller. Um, I remember I won the, the Miller championship in 91, 92 and 93. And I remember front sight writing it up. There's something about like Michael Jordan. Okay. Todd's like Michael Jordan because he won three world championships. <laughs> All of those things were a year. So I was going to laugh about that. Hey, um, but yeah. And so in 96, we had the world championship coming up and I'd already previously shot the world championship in 93 in England, um, which was by far, uh, I would say the hardest of all the world championships uh, to date that I have seen um, mm. over the years. And it was, it was in England. Uh, we were on a military base and it was a really, really cool match. It was, um, it rained the whole time. I remember it was super difficult, uh, a lot of hard targets, uh, a lot of props. I mean, we used helicopters, we used two story, you know, you know, buses that were, you know, broken down that they used for props. I mean, it was a really wow. fun match at the time. So then we went to Brazil in 96. And so uh, I, I think favored going in, um, you know, Jerry Barnhart was one, Rob Latham, Michael Boyd was uh, there at the time, was on the team. Um, and so Matt McLaren, there was a bunch of us um, that were, I think we're all pretty even then. I mean, it was, it was probably... In that period of time, I'd say from 93 to maybe uh, through 96, by far, those guys, um, there was about five of us. And you could almost flip a coin who was not going to win it um, because it was just kind of one of those types of, um, you know, fuel set that we all had at the time. So it was fascinating for all of us. So, so winning the, you know, going to the World Shoot 96 and getting through 30, I think we only had 30 stages uh, at the time. I don't think it was 36. I could be wrong. Um, and so it was just getting there, getting your ammunition there, prepping for it uh, to any world championship you're going to travel overseas is always difficult. Uh, and the reason why, because you never know if you're going to get sick um, and which you, God forbid, you know, if you get sick overseas somewhere, you're pretty much out of the tournament wise. Um, so all of us were, um, kind of knocking heads back and forth through that tournament, which was in Brasilia and at the time. And I ended up coming out on top. Uh, I remember going into the last day, uh, Jerry Barnhart was actually winning the match. And I was, I woke up on the last day on Friday and I think I was in fifth place overall. We were fairly close, but we were in fifth. And I just decided I woke up and um, I said, today's my time to um, win this match. And, um, and so at the end of the day, it came down to the last stage between Jerry and I. And Jerry um, had a, had faltered uh, and had a miss uh, on the very last stage. And I shot after him. And it was kind of like, I never forget, you was, we were sitting in a car. And we had to shoot the head of a large pepper popper, just the top of it, through a car, sitting in the vehicle at 35 yards away. And I'm going like, wow, this is a, you know, this is an intense shot. You, you you had to have your game plan on and I remember hitting that um, hitting that pepper popper down it was kind of like that just set the tone for that stage and I ended up winning that stage and um, and it was all over and done with um, 
you know, Matt McLaren, who Matt and I were really good friends at the time. And, um, and Rob and all of them, you know, they all came up to me and they, you know, it was US, you know, USA actually won, you know, the top, top spot. So it put us on the podium, which was always important for us as a team. But we, of course, we want to knock each other off. I mean, I want to be Rob and Jerry wanted to be me. <laughs> we didn't want Matt to win again because Matt had won in 93. So it's kind of like, hey, it's my turn, you know. So, but, um, but no, it was, um, that was probably, you know, winning the first nationals for me was probably, you know, the pinnacle of my career because it's your first nationals. But winning the first world championship for me uh, will go down in history um, for me as being my most memorable moment, a moment in, uh, in the active shooting community. And then I went on to, you know, you know, 99 and, um, yeah, so 99, 2002 and 2003, I was second to Eric. Um, you know, that was in the Philippines. I was 99. There was a controversy that went on there. I still have a, uh, a sour, sour tooth over that. Um, I probably should have won. Um, um, but Eric ended up winning at the time. And then I was second in, uh, Ecuador, oh, South Africa, and then I was second to him in uh, in Ecuador, and I haven't I haven't been back to shoot the world championship other than when it was in uh, Cross Truth in 2014. Kind of got my uh, feel of the world championships and trying to deal with overseas stuff, and it was just um, it it just didn't work out. I didn't want to spend uh, you know 14 hours a day of doing the hard work and getting it done because life was just um, more complicated for me then. Couple of couple of questions. <clears throat> it was interesting. You said England was the toughest world match you've shot by far. But how did Brazil, when you won that, how did that match compare to the match, the previous world at England? Was it as? I mean, a thirty-five yard headshot on a mini pop or on a popper at thirty-five yards. That's that's a pretty tight shot. Yeah, I mean, there was. I mean, you know. The, the targets that we see today in, in major championships are, you know, they're just not there like it used to be. I mean, uh, I remember, you know, shooting, you know, nationals in the past where you're going like 35 yard headshots with no shoots underneath them. And you walk away going like, hey, I only had a miss. I just had one miss. <laughs> How many did you have? I had three of them in a notion. Okay. Now, but. Todd, how much of that do you think is because of all the other divisions? Like in the '90s, it was just open. Well, we did have limited. We started the limited nationals in '92. Uh, that was okay. the first year of Ironsight, and uh, that was the only nationals that I actually missed. And the only reason why, because at the time I didn't have enough vacation uh, to go and shoot it. So, of all the nationals that I've shot over the years, that was the only year that I'd missed um a, a major match you know of course we got you know, tons of nationals now like carry optics i mean i can't go shoot the carry optics nationals because i work for staccato and so we don't make a you know a basically a you know a production gun that's legal for that division right now so um at that time um you know it was iron sights um were i would say iron sights um kind of took off believe it or not and became um, a very prevalent class uh, through the 90s. So I always shot, I always shot iron sights and and the um, and open along the way. And there were nationals that we shot, um, or area, I mean, excuse me, area championships that were shot that you could actually shoot, shoot two guns in. So 
one year, um, I forget what year it was. I want to say 94, maybe um, uh, time time goes by quick, pretty quick. So 94, 95, maybe 95. Uh, area two, you could shoot an open gun and you could shoot a uh, limited gun. And I remember winning both of them uh, in the same weekend. So those, both those nationals were, were um, oh, those area championships were back to back. And then the following weekend, two weeks later or something, we went flew to area three and um, they had the same match going on. So you could shoot open match with your open gun and then shoot iron sights uh, a couple of days later and then go shoot them. And I ended up winning both of those. I remember in 95, so I won all four. And I think Jerry was second to me uh, in open and Rob was second to me in limited uh, in both those matches. And so it was, um, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of time being put into, you know, equipment and, you know, now you're working two guns when you go to practice, you're working, working iron sight and an open sight gun. So, and I was shooting at that time, I was shooting 125, 135,000 rounds a year. Um, and, you know, in dry firing four hours a day, I mean, every day for, for years, uh, I did that for dec- wow. you know, well over 10 years. So, um, so we jumped back forward and, you know, go in front of the world shooting in 96. Now equipment, um, pretty much kind of stabilized in that period of time. We did get some uh, interesting things along the way. So um, there were better magazines. There were better springs that were coming out. Powders were getting better. Uh, we were getting a little bit more consistent with how the uh, guns were going to operate. So we kind of worked all the bugs out of high cap guns that were issues from the early 90s uh, to about 95, probably, yeah, probably 95, we kind of figured the bugs out. But there was a there was a, I would say, a huge jump in how guns were built in that period of time and how they lasted longer. Uh, optics were on open guns were by far, I would say, more and more um, dependable, um, you know, in what we were doing. Um, I think it was interesting because sponsorship really kind of came into USPSA in that period of time, and which was, you know, we were all like happy about that. I mean, you know, we were getting more sponsors, people were coming in. We were just excited about having that, you know, um, that gr- core group of people come in and help us. And I think uh, then that we, we end up having, I would say by 98, we had probably, you know, 15 or 18 really good shooters out there. So we went to the match. It was kind of like, I got to watch this guy. I got to watch this guy. And oh, this guy's good. And I know this guy's watching me and I'm watching him. And so it was, it was one of those period of times where there was this huge boost uh, in the GM class and, and, uh, and GM had came, you know, GM shooters had popped up at time where um, you had to step up your game. So if you step up your game, you were, you were not going to win. So I had dedicated myself in that period of time. So it was a, you know, a good from 1990 to 2003, probably 13 years of me. I probably at one time, I, I, I can honestly say, I mean, my trophy case behind me there, um, I was probably winning 75% of the most of the um, matches in that period of time for about a 10 year period. Uh, and if I wasn't, I was in the top five for sure. Um, I, I think once 2000, the early 2000s hit, there was a group of new shooters that popped up uh, that you knew that were going to be, uh, they had some skill set that they were going to be the next evolution of, um, you know, heroes in the, in the shooting sports for sure. Uh, and so 9-11 hit uh, in 2001. Um, I remember um, 
The match was canceled. Mike Voigt called me up because the match is canceled. We're not going to have it because it was just a few days um, after 9-11. The following weekend, we were having a, having a national championship in Pasa at the time. And I remember loading. I was loading ammo, watching TV, and uh, when, when, the, when the World Trade Center got hit, and we were going, oh, my God, I mean, I'm, I'm flying out in two days. And one thing led to another. We all know what happened is, you know, everything was canceled. New flights were going out for three days. Uh, you and I remember that. Some of the, you know, young yeah. guys now who are shooting never would understand what went on that period of time. So the match was off. They canceled it. And so one thing led to another. Um, Mike called up and said, hey, we're going to have it. I said, oh, okay. Well, and he knew I was a top guy and, at the time. And, and we need, I need to get in the vehicle and, threw all my gear in the vehicle and, and drove 14 hours nonstop and shot the following day. And so wow. it was, um, it was an interesting, um, interesting time um, for us, you know, as, as a, as an organization to be able to deal with what went on and everybody showed up and we shot the match and said, you know, said the things we need to say and, you know, thank the people we need to thank along the way. And so it was, it was interesting. So, but that by, by that time, um, so the late 90s, um, that's when production came in. So the production nationals, um, there was like a, a, like a, like a pre-match that they had in, I think, in 1999. And a guy named Dave Savigny, uh, he came on scene. Dave had been shooting for uh, two or three years, and he was always hanging around the top. He was always one of those guys, pretty phenomenal. And he was kind of like the production guy. I went to work for Glock, and he was shooting Glock at the time. I'm not sure if he was working for, for Glock or not, but but Dave was – he did bring something to the game that none of us had seen um, right off the bat, which was he jumped right in the game. He was winning right off the bat, and he was very consistent. And we had never seen that type of individual come through the shooting sports that were was only in the game for a couple of years, and it's kind of like – wow, this guy's been in two or three years and he's already at the top of the top of the game. And so he was already winning um, some area matches here or there. And he was always hanging around at the top. And, and then we had the first production nationals and, and pass up, um, um, pass a park in Illinois. And that was the first year of production nationals. And my boss at Paraordinance at the time goes, Todd, I want you to shoot um, our new production gun, which was called an LDA. Uh, the LDA was a double action trigger that we had built into the actual 1911 system, and the gun's no longer around our existence. Um, but I won the first production nationals that year, and Dave was second on it. And then my whole thing was I was just trying to um, any new category that came out, I want to jump on it, and I want to see if I can, you know, pull a bit more history in my back pocket uh, for winning nationals for, for for other you know different disciplines we got, and then the single stack. Um, you know, became, uh, I would say, come back in the game. Um, probably about that time, I don't remember exactly. And Springfield had started that uh, single stack classic, uh, which was at Passa Park. The Springfield was in Illinois and Geneseo right down the road. And it just made sense for, for them to do it. And Rob had, had, had gotten that, um, that actual, you know, that national championship going along the way um and i think it took them a few years for that to actually become a a true nationals so i never shot it and that was one that's one national championship that has eluded me and even though i started with a single stack 
uh, 45, you know, back in 83. Um, for me, it was like uh, that was one one um, nationals that's always eluded me over the years. And I've been second and third a couple of times on it. But uh, Rob was the king of the hill of that. And he's, you know, if you can just stay on your feet and not move around and have to bend down these days, he probably would still be hanging out and and have be able to you know to win that match again so but he's he he, he he was pretty phenomenal with that gun so um for me i put the time in for it and i just never got lucky after i think 14 tries or something over the year so uh, so this year we have uh the single stack classic which is all the iron sides we got production we got limited limited 10 which i have no idea why we got limited 10 even more and then we have Revolver, which is going to be the Ironside National, which is going to be up in Ohio. It'll be the first time that I've shot a Nationals in Ohio. And it looks like a really super nice facility up there. And I think Jake and him have been working hard uh, to be able to make sure those guys get everything correct and up and running. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going up there in the, uh, this summer and shooting that. Single stack? You're gonna... I don't know if I'm going to shoot single stack. I don't know if I'm going to shoot limited. Um, I haven't decided yet. It won't be revolver, or it won't be limited ten. <laughs> okay, so we know two. You're definitely not going to two, shoot. Two's out. Two's out. <laughs> now, now, I, I have, now I won the limited nationals a, a, a couple times so over the years, so I do have that in my belt. Um, and so when if it, if I do shoot the single stack, um, I, I pulled a gun out the other day. It's kind of like do I shoot minor. I shoot major, so I got I got twenty five thousand rounds loaded up, um, ready to go. That will go in either gun, uh, whether I shoot major or if I shoot minor. So they're all set up, and uh, I did that back here uh, last last fall, and I set it up, and I was going like, yeah, we'll see what happens next year. So I knew that it was going this match is going to be held. So so we'll see. Um, I don't know, I'm looking forward to figuring out what gun I'm going to shoot. And if the guys that that know me locally, um. Very rarely do I shoot the same gun for more than a couple months at a time. I'll I like to jump around. I'll shoot like I'm a, I'm a limited optics right now. Uh, I'm gonna do that through area four, and then I will jump off of that. And then because I'm gonna shoot the PCC nationals this year, and then I also um, plan on shooting. Um, I'm I'm not gonna shoot open this year. I'm gonna shoot PCC nationals and give that one more try. See if um one of the Williams sisters can um beat me again so um <laughs> i can honestly say hey, i got my man card i mean the girl's good I can say. she's pretty she's awesome good. yeah she's damn good she really is she's put some time into it uh so um yeah i, I can honestly say that i'm i'm one of those guys got beat by a girl uh, at the national championship but she's a rare breed and um i, I gotta hand it to her um, both of them they put their time and effort into um shooting whatever discipline they want to work on and they, they're damn good. They really are. Some of the best um, uh, two young shooters. And I've known um, both I've, seen, I've known both of them since they were eight, nine years old. And so I've watched that, um, you know, both of them come along uh, and, and and get what they are today in the action shooting sports. So especially in USPSA. And they are they're pretty phenomenal, um, you know, bunch of girls, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, Justine is driven to win high overall. So, and Max Leah Grandis is the only one that stopped her last year. So that's true. And Max is, um, you know, he's, um, he's got a gift for that, for that squirt gun. I, I don't know mm -hmm. what he does. He just got a gift for him. And, and I've shot with him. Um, he's, you know, he's actually, I've watched him cause I shot the very first PCC nationals and, 
uh, I think I finished third. And Max won it that year. Taryn Butler was second. I was third that year. And it was really close between Taryn and I going into the last stage. And so, um, and, and Max just walked away with it. And then the following year, he um, he just crushed everybody. And I would say the last couple um, nationals, he's he's been, I would say, um, maybe we're just catching up with him because you always learn from the best. So I don't care who's out there. So whoever's the top shooter there is, you know, we're watching videos of them or we're, we're watching how they operate on the range and you're picking up little things. So like for me, I was talking to JJ Ricaza. Uh, JJ and I did a podcast here uh, a couple months ago. We were chatting and JJ goes, Todd, um, for you, you know, you've been, you know, you've been doing the same thing over and over for decades. I went, you know, you got the same technique and everything. I said, no, but I, I'm, I'm even, I'm almost 60 now. And I'm still working to change different techniques that I'm seeing from Christian Saylor, from JJ or Max, you know, um, you know, Leah Grandis and Max Michelle. Uh, those guys, I, I, um, I pay attention to and watch them because my whole thing is that the trends are changing in, in the game and how we shoot things. So the game's a little bit more faster now by far. Uh, hit factors are higher, stages are closer, more compact, targets are more wide open, which doesn't um, you know, um, doesn't brood well for me because I'm not a, I'm, I don't shoot fast. I, I, you know, for me, I've always had fast target acquisitions, but I've never had a, that fast split. So these kids now that are out there shooting 11, 10, 12 breaks uh, pretty consistently on wide open targets, 7, 10, even 12, you're 15 yards away. I don't have that skill set. So I have to figure out another way to be able to clip a little bit of time off, whether it be in movement, whether it be on the draw. Uh, would it be on reloading on the move, getting in a position quicker? But all, everybody else sees that too because they watch JJ. I mean, JJ doesn't shoot fast at all. He has horrible splits. He shoots like an old man, like I do. <laughs> yeah. But his damn, his damn footwork is like, is just yeah. probably is pretty, he probably has the best footwork by far of anybody else out there except for Nils. Now, Nils is, he's like a, an alien from, another planet because the problem is with Nils, his legs are like already six feet tall. So he, for every two steps I take, he takes like a quarter step and uh, his position. Thing, uh, that's where he gets most of us uh, in the, in the game. So if you want to watch, if you're a tall guy, like, you know, six over six foot, you would definitely want to consider looking at Nils as, you know, as a mentor online by watching what he does, because it's all about footwork. This game really is about footwork. It's not about shooting. The shooting only gives you a score. But if I can do a 12 break, you know, versus uh, a 17 break, if I combine all those splits up along the way, say at a national championship, so we shoot 24 stages. So we go out there and have, I go like, I'm going to add up every single, single split that I'm going to get behind, behind Christian Saylor. Okay. Christian, he's a he's a split he's a split master for sure. So if I go up there, automatically walking into the match, I'm going to be seven and nine seconds behind him before we we before we the buzzer first goes off. Wow, that's just a given. So I'm that far behind because I don't have those splits. Well, of course he's got me by forty years too. So. You know, I yeah. kind of lose my train of thought along the way. You know how that is. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> yes, I do. 
Did I get that deep voice out last week? And this is like happening during the stage. It's kind of like, oh my God, I, I don't, did I drink enough water earlier? I just don't feel good. You know, so, uh, how much sleep did you get last night? I, I don't even remember. I forgot to take my chair tall. Yeah, I got to get my chair tall. Now, Todd, back in the 90s, I mean, when you were talking like the Miller Invitational, was there, I'm always curious, what, did they give cash prizes back then or was it oh, yeah. just, okay, so you got a, uh, like, I mean, I can see all the cups behind you over there, uh, all the trophies, so you got a trophy and a cash prize. Correct, and I mean... So it's, it, well, I'm going to jump back to my very first cash prize match, which was in 1988 at a, at a match in Evansville, Indiana. It's called the Golden Eagle. And I was new at the time, but everybody kind of was watching me. And I ended up winning that match. And I think Jerry Barnhart was second at the time. And maybe Rob may have been third. And they're going to lie, the kids just got lucky. But I remember when the award ceremony came up and they walk up and, you know, here's Todd. And I didn't know what to say here. I was a kid, you know, I didn't know. I'm like, hey, thank you. I want to thank everybody. And okay, okay, here's $1,000 in, in $100 bills. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just won $1,000, you know? So that was my very first cash prize that I got. And so um, over the years, you would go to major matches um, and the Florida Invitational, um, they they were the money match. You could go down there and oh. make six grand easy, um, because they paid that stage money. So it was five hundred dollars a first. Uh, I think it was three fifty per second and one hundred fifty per third. And if you were you know if you were good at stages and you were at the top of the game, you could walk out there with. I think I I, I typically averaged between four to six thousand uh, dollars every single time I went to that I went to that match every year. So. Um, that kind of paid for a lot of, you know, expenses and, you know, hotel rooms and, you know, it, everything turned right back into the, in, into the game you were playing that you love to do. So right. that was um, something I was doing. But, the, yeah, but the Miller, in the beginning, uh, they did pay out cash in the beginning, I think, after they started writing checks for it. So I think it was just easier accounting-wise for them uh, over the years. But I would say by 19 – I would say by 1996, 97 – um, I think the match directors um, decided that they wanted to make more money than the shooters, and the, that kind of went away. The prizes were great. We used to have phenomenal prize tables. I mean, you go to prize tables. I mean, Dylan would, you know, they were giving ten fifties away. You had guns on the table that went down 40, 50 places. Um, wow. You know, we had tons of tons of sponsors at the time, and so uh, like all the area matches, like Fredericksburg. So you're in Fredericksburg, and you know, Fredericksburg ran area eight for years. And God Almighty, we used to have prize tables there that were phenomenal, you know, back in the 90s. Uh, today, uh, you you know, uh, prize tables, I don't even know why they even have them because it's, you know, it's really not, not you know, prevalent, you know, to the to the top guys. Uh, yeah, we there's a few guns out there. Um, but I would just soon for, I would just soon to, to um, you know, have the, have the, have those donated to the, you know, to juniors and new shooters coming in than it is to the top guys, but it's, it's really not worth it um, for us to even bother with it. And plus anything over $600, um, you're getting a 1099 from, um, from a gun company. So if I get a, I get a gun from SIG, I'm going to get a 1099. And so, um, okay, I got, you know, a gun that's, that I couldn't sell for $500. 
but retail is $7.99. So I get retail value on it, and I get a $10.99 on it, and I got to pay taxes on it. So, you know, I sold it to my local dealer so I can go buy bullets or shotgun shells or powder or whatever I, I need for, you know, what's coming up. And, you know, you end up, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not cost effective. Um, do we need the sponsors? Do they want to give us stuff? Yeah, we do. And I, I think uh, I would love to be able to see like a program that we could have um, like an escrow for, for, um, for new shooters coming into the shooting sports, whether it be juniors, ladies, um, newcomers, and, you know, people come in and we, and we can reward them uh, across the board with um, an escrow um, container. You know, guys need holsters. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I want to get into it. Uh, so do who, we, we do, do we ship those to, you know, to our section matches, our state championship matches and, you know, and, and give those out. Um, you know, you need some way of kind of policing that because um, sometimes things don't get where they're supposed to go at correctly. And that can be and also be an, be an issue, um, you know, when it comes to match directors. And we got, you know, great match directors. You don't get me wrong, but there's been plenty of thievery in the past. And uh, that I can tell you, I, you know, after 40 years of doing it, I can tell you some, tell you some stories that, that are pretty sickening uh, in, in many ways. Wow. Now, while we're on the topic of prizes and, and cash, um, what did you think of Prairie Fire and their rank competition? Well, um, I work for Staccato, and so you have to understand that Prairie Fire is our sister company. And so okay. when, they, when they did the rank, um, that was a – it's like anything that, you know um, – Companies coming in, and over the years, there's probably been maybe five or six major companies over the years that kind of popped up and said, "Hey, let's um, we're going to do a big promotional thing because we want to, you know, you know, you know, get our get our you know company or get our range or something our product out along the way." So somebody mm -hmm. would throw big money at at some um, you know event, and everybody's going to come and shoot it, and so. I was involved in the um, putting the stages together with that. I didn't have anything else to do with uh, other than that. Uh, there was a big, huge um, undertaking. Uh, that event probably cost Prairie Fire more than probably close to $2 million to put that event on. Wow. And so uh, did, they get the, um, did they get the publicity that you wanted out of it? Uh, they, they, they got a lot of publicity out of it. So now Prairie Fire is actually um, – where the original front front site range was in Las Vegas. So right. Prairie Fire uh, purchased that. So the actual company, uh, which is an investment group, which now owns Staccato, um, they own the um, uh, the range out in Vegas, which was the front site range out there. And they're getting ready to drop millions of dollars into that facility over there. They want to make it a premier uh, facility for people coming in and shoot nationwide. Because the, the guy who is the, uh, the big boss, uh, his name is Peter Castleman, and Peter is a huge Second Amendment guy, huge. And, I mean, he's owned companies like North Face, Igloo Coolers, and a, a bunch of other places. So the guy's got tons of money. Mm. He's a huge Second Amendment guy. And he really wanted uh, the Prairie Fire event to take off and go where it should go at. Um the problem is when there was a lot of um, there were a lot of chiefs involved there, um, but but not enough Indians. 
uh, in my opinion. So um, it's it went off, and Tim Yackley won won a lot of money. Um, you know, BJ yeah. Norris won a lot of money, and Nils was going like I was I was actually RO in that event um, for the finals there, and Nils goes like, "How did Tim beat me by like six seconds?" I was going like. <laughs> You shoot slow, Nils. You aim too hard. That kid ain't aiming. He, he don't even know where. <laughs> so Nils, Nils and, and of course, I'm, I'm I'm chatting with them, you know, in between while they're doing different runs, you know, because I ran the whole the the whole um, one is hard over at the end, and um, it was just funny, you know. Nils going like, "Is a kid ever going to miss?" I went, "No." I mean, I had some really hard targets. I had like little mini poppers, the little mini poppers uh, out at eighteen to twenty yards away, and then Tim just hit them all one for one. He just he didn't even blink. And it was going like, we just wow. kind of scratched our head. I mean, it's going like the kid was just on fire. And we knew going into that, I was going like, Tim has been hot. He is, he's um, another phenomenal shot. He is um, tall, lanky kid. He's very similar in uh, stature is um, as Nils is. So, mm -hmm. um, but Tim's a, Tim's a really, he's a, he's, he's, he's no joke. He's a, he's a phenomenal shot. He really is. So, um, Prayer Fire, uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure if they're going to do that million-dollar deal this year or not. Um, I would think if they're going to do anything, they start advertising that here in another couple of months. I haven't heard anything with that. I'm not involved with it, uh, and I don't plan on being involved with, with it um, this year unless um, I'm told to be there. So, Okay. Now, going back to the 90s real quick before we get into your presidential stuff, we – Last episode, we talked a little bit about how you went to Steve Hornady and, you know, he was building your bullets for you. How much work? Because there was, that seemed to be a huge growth period in powders, bullets, and, and pistol shooting in general, that whole growth. How much did you guys work with the different ammunition companies and manuf and barrel manufacturers to really solidify all of that? Um, it, it's hard to most because most of these companies, I mean, because they're you know these corporations, they're in a the business of making money, not losing money. Mm -hmm. So if I come to you and go like, oh, Dave, you know, hey, you know, um, I, I got this really great new bullet design I want you to do. And it's kind of like, okay, Todd, how many can I sell? Go like, oh man, we got a lot of guys are shooting. I mean, I know we can probably sell, you know, probably a million of them easy. And you're going like. A million, um, Todd. That's that's a great way of understanding how to lose money in business. And Macro set up a, a, a tooling process to be able to make a million bullets. Now you come to me and say you're going to do 15, 20 million. Then we got something we want. We can talk about. So my whole thing was is that you know talking to different people in the industry. Atlanta Arms and Ammo. Uh, Danny Weisner. Actually, Danny Weisner was my very first sponsor in 1986. 87 when he went into business and um so danny was actually starting making ammunition um that was loaded components for the competition market so people who didn't want to load they could essentially um go to land arms and ammo and you could buy straight from him and at a, at a very reasonable price and you didn't have to reload a lot of people at the time didn't know how to reload didn't have the time didn't want to worry with it they just wanted to shoot um and I know, like uh, Rob, you know Rob Latham. Um, Rob has been shooting lamp on 
Atlanta Arms and Ammo for, for decades now. And I, Rob don't even reload. Only thing he reloads is rifle stuff. You know, Rob goes, I'm not, I'm not reloading, Todd. I just, that's, that's below me. You know, only thing I want to do is shoot. So, um, so you just follow Rob around the range for brass. So, yeah. So, so we're going to, um, going to any time that I would approach a company, uh, you better have your homework done because as I got older, I understand, I understand more how the business side of the firearms work, world work. So whenever I went to somebody and I went like, Hey, I would like to have a, a bullet made or I need a part made or something done. They're going like, okay, well, if I want to make a part for a gun, so I go in and go like, Hey, I got a design for a part. I want you to do, uh, would you be interested in making it? How many you want to make? I was going like, I think I can do 5,000. And that company may say, okay, um, 5,000 is not a lot for us, Todd. We're going to have to put you on the back burner. We can get that to you at the end of the year. Uh, if I went to a company and go like, uh, okay, I got 5,000 parts I want to make, but I want you to sell them. And then I'll take a percentage of them back. And they're going like, well, okay, well, that makes sense. And we can make more money. And, and then, you know, and you get to get a little bit of money too. Uh, so those were things that I went how I approached the industry as a business and I, I and, and all the people that are out there listening to this podcast, and if you're new to shooting sports and you think you're going to become a uh, pro shooter, understand how the business of the firearms industry works. It is a mom and pop operation. I would say 75 to 80% of all the companies that have are, are there in existence, they start in somebody's garage. Um, I, I mean, we just look at, you know, look, look at the gun industry itself, look at, Les, Les Bear. I knew Les Bear when he was in his in his garage in Pennsylvania. Now he's a you know he's got a major major corporation. He's got um, you know I can just you know Bill Wilson. Same with Bill. Bill was working out of his garage and look where Bill's out today. Uh, we can look at you know I probably named fifty companies um, over the years where people that I have you know you know shot with over the years they, their business turned you know their shooting turned into a business. Some of us you know, uh, shooters became shooters. And so along the way, I, I felt that that I need to understand how the industry worked because I was already in it with parallel ordinance and safari land. So I was already, you know, going doing demonstrations for law enforcement and I knew how to shoot. So that's why they used this um, because they want to showcase uh, a new product they may have. And so I understood that side of business, um, but looking at the numbers, you had to really dig into and ask questions about um, a firearms manufacturer or an accessory company uh, or a bullet company, you know, what was going to be profitable for them. So, of course, you make friends within that industry, not at the top, but below supervision, workers, those guys may be shooters and they work on, you know, shoot on the weekend with you. Go like, yeah, so um. You know, how much brass do you make every week? You know, what kind of bullets you make? Who's in charge of that? So uh, for me, that was a learning curve as a, you know, as a young guy uh, trying to figure out that, that part of the industry. And it's been a very valuable for me. So, um, so even running for president, um, I, I think I have a, you know, a leg up on most of the guys that are running uh, because I, I've dealt with the firearms industry for so long and I know who's who. And um, and they're all basically all these people that I you know have worked with for 25, 30, sometimes I've known them for 40 years. 
Um, right. And so I think it's a leg up for me um, coming into the organization and uh, potentially if I get voted in to um, have a chance to be able to help out the organization a little bit more. Well, and that's a, a, a good place to go now. Um, you just put out your agenda for running for USPSA president. Um, and it looks like you have quite a few points here. Uh, 14 different points that you put out. Now, the one that seems to be getting um, the most heat is a code of conduct. So I figured we'll talk about that, let you give an opportunity to, to explain what you mean. And what are you looking at when you say a code of conduct for everybody and everybody adheres to it? What do you mean by that? We are a national organization and we are a nonprofit that has excess of more than 20,000 members in it. So any organization nonprofit that has 20,000 members, you can go and look in every single one of those corporations um, are going to have some type of code of conduct um, for their members, for their board directors, um, for the people that work for them. Uh, and that's just a given. Uh, and I, I've said for years, we need to have that. And then, well, of course, there's plenty of people out there going like, well, oh, God, that's just ridiculous. You just need to get rid of it. I was going like, well, it's actually there to help everyone. It's not there to hurt anyone or take anybody away. A code of conduct is just like, essentially, so you're telling me that you want to break a rule or maybe a law and still be able to do what you want to do. So here's a prime example. And somebody called me up the other day and they were all upset about it. So I was going like, okay, here's a, here's a code of conduct that we should have. Okay, so Dave, um, here, here's your, here's you, you and I are, are friends. So I get indicted for some reason. Let's say I get indicted for pornography, okay? Um, but no one knows that. So I end up, uh, grand jury comes in, they find me um, guilty of, uh, uh, of this crime. So a subpoena goes out, um, I have to go to court and I go to court and the judge goes, um, Okay, Todd, here's the situation. Um, if you have any firearms at your house and your passport, any deadly weapons that be turned into the marshal service um, before you um, end up going to court, but going to court could be six months, could be nine months, how it can go. So after that period of time, let's say I don't have any guns, but you didn't know that I had already been indicted for a crime. I'm going like, hey, um, hey, Dave, how about, um, I, I think I'm going to shoot next weekend. Well, Todd, I haven't seen you in several months. Where have you been, man? I haven't seen you like in a year. Well, I got rid of my guns, and I'm thinking about getting back in the game. Can I borrow one of your guns and go shoot a match with it? So if I go shoot a match with it, are, are, are you um, breaking the law by giving me a gun that, that um, I'm not allowed to have? This has happened before uh, in the organization. Let's say that you have um, assault and battery um charge against you against your wife um god forbid i hope you don't have to beat up your wife for some reason or have there's some kind of you know abuse against it let's say that you know you are in a situation where um you brandish a firearm um and you get in trouble for that i mean think about this right here so just yesterday the nba and because we, we want to be pro a professional organization and we're professional people that want this organization to grow 
and have some type of standards. So as the Rome is 40,000 members now, and we don't have a code of conduct. So for me, it's kind of like I was just laughing yesterday and the wife and I were just chatting about one of the NBA um, players um, who just got caught brandishing a firearm. So the NBA actually, um, you know, punished him a while back ago for having a firearm um, at a bar or something there, some club he was at. And so he gets another one yesterday. It cost him $40 million. Now, wow. I'm not saying that none of us, none of us here. Um, so he's kicked out of the NBA um, for a period of time. But in that period of time, his contract, he has to be able to shoot certain, uh, play a certain amount of um, games in order to, um, you know, to keep that 40 million, he lost $40 million. Now, let's just say that the organization, I, you lend me a gun, something happens with it, and I do something stupid with it, and I get caught, um, you're in trouble, and would the organization be in trouble? Yeah, and everybody's going to say, oh, Todd, that's just dumb, that's never going to happen. Uh, what about drug-related stuff? What about somebody who comes on to the range who has been doing some type of illegal drugs, let's say cocaine, okay? And somebody saw them do that on the range and saw them shooting. Let's say they, I have an alcohol problem and they come on to the range. You don't think this has happened over the years? I've seen it. I've seen this happen. Personally, I have gone up to individuals and go like, dude, if I ever see you doing a coke line again, I'm going to tell the world. Oh, Todd, it's all good, man. No problem. It's not, I'm going like, and I said this, this was back in the 90. And I have guys show up on the range before. They're going like, who's been drinking? You know, anybody been, somebody been drinking Bud Light around here or something? I, I mean, you know, I mean, I was going like, you, I smell alcohol. Who's been drinking? Oh, oh, I had a late night last night. I was going like, you know, but when you see that individual a couple of times and they're going like, dude, you got an alcohol problem? Dude, you got a gun on. You don't need to be on the range. So now we have an accident. This guy ends up, you know, getting arrested on the range for something. And we don't even have a code of conduct for that, you know, and also goes for the board directors, you know, the, the top chain, you know, from CEOs all the way down to the organization. You know, they should be held responsible for things they do. So if somebody does something wrong within the organization, that code of conduct should be there just for them as well as the members. There should not be, this should not be an issue. So we all just want to have fun. We all just want to shoot, but you always going to have situations that are going to pop up with individuals. And I, I got guys going like, Todd, that's stupid. I never, you know, I'll quit the organization before um, I go along with that code of conduct. Okay, man, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, I mean, I feel that this organization needs to have one. We have one for all the shooting sports. You can go to every shooting sport there is around the world. Go look at the Olympic shooting uh, code of conduct. It's 22 pages long. Now theirs has doping in it, wow. uh, in some, but 22 pages long. I've already actually have gotten it halfway written already. Um, so if I if I win it, and if I don't, I know that Yi Ming, um, somebody popped up yesterday and I, I saw my name was attached to it. It's going like, Yi Ming now wants to have a code of conduct. I was going like, well, it, this should have been done years ago. And I have said for years, we should have done this. We could have fixed problems along the way, um, you know, whether it be, you know, to a point where, okay, uh, you, you and I get in a, a scuffle on the range. You and I have a discussion, okay? You get mad at me, I get mad at you because I made a football call or on you or something. You, you're going like, oh, Todd, you're, you, I, I, I didn't have a football. And I said, okay, all right, we cool, Dave? 
I'm sorry, man. I just went by the rule book. The rule book says you got football. That's what I saw. Three people behind me said they saw it. Okay, you're gonna like, don't get upset about it. It's 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 just a game. It's a recreational game. We just here to have fun. Okay, there's no money on the line here, and you're not gonna win anything. I mean, if it if winning means that much to you by not having a code of conduct, I don't want to be around you. I, I just don't. I, I'm just I'm 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 that guy who wants to. Uh, I want to be a professional at everything I do, and I think the organization. Um, needs to be able to understand how to deal with things instead of having maybe one person do that or two people make those decisions. One of them could be favoritism to, you know, you know, this one, you know, John Doe number one, he may do the exact same thing as John Doe number two, but John Doe number one just, oh, he's a great guy. He's an RO. He's a CRO. He's been around for a long time. We're going to let him slide. No, we can't let him slide. So the same, you know, things that happen to John Doe number two, should be equally, you know, uh, prosecuted, in my opinion, you know, within whatever we're going to, how we're going to charge that individual. Whether we put them out for six months or whether we put them, you know, give them a warning or something. And, and we hopefully, we don't have to use none of it. I mean, why why use any of this? And so I think the, I think the big thing is, is that the online content um, of people that social media people want to got to enforce their opinion. Cool. Hey, I, I am for the Second Amendment. I'm, I'm cool with you. You say whatever you want to say. As long as you don't hurt me personally, and I'm not going to hurt you personally. I think that we all just need to be able to understand that we love this game. We like shooting it. It's a lot of fun. And let's just go have fun. And you don't have to worry about a code of conduct. It's sitting in, you know, in page, you know, 279th in the book uh, or in our, within our bylaws. And so what? What do we care about? I mean, just have a little fun. You know, I mean, if you think that it's going to get you more sponsorship because you lost out on the match, my feeling is to you, go practice more, um, become a better shot. Now, what is your, so going along with that same theme, what are your thoughts on what it would take to actually kick somebody out or suspend them? Like what types of um infractions are we looking at i don't i don't think that uh, i mean that that's going to be something that needs to be set down so um you know you know people are going like you know hey todd you need to put ben stoger back in if you're president but that cat's already out of the bag i, I can't do anything about that i mean that's just you know that's i mean there have been people who have been suspended 20 years ago i, I, I don't even know who they are i mean i i never you know, I never even followed that case with Ben. I have no idea. I'm not a huge social media guy. I know Ben got a little cranky. And I mean, I like Ben. I have no problem with Ben. I mean, I've shot with him over years and uh, he has been uh, nice to me. And I, I you know, I, I never had an issue with Ben at all. I mean, the guy's a phenomenal shot. Uh, great instructor, great, you know, great teacher. And he stays busy at the game. And But I, I have no, I have no ruling in that. So if everybody looks at the bylaws, of what the president does. I have no really, I have, the only thing I can do is break ties in, in, certain, in certain things. And I, I, I set, set some agenda, but there's really not a whole lot that the president does. Everything's done by the board. So the board members are the key people that you need to influence um, in your area. So if you're in area eight or area six and you need to talk to your board member and say, hey, this is what I like to see done. If you don't want a code of conduct, call them up and tell them. I mean, if they say, Todd, we don't want a code of conduct, okay, we'll trash it. We won't do it. I don't have a problem with that neither. I just think we need to have one as a major corporation 
to be able to understand that we are a nonprofit and we are a firearms recreational organization that's national. And we just need to be able to have something that um, that we have on paper. You know, if something comes up and we end up getting sued, at least we have a code of conduct to be able to do something with it. So um, I think as far as, you know, how do you put them in the category? Okay, let's say that, um, let's say pornography. Okay, is that is is that the same seriousness as um, someone who's you know drinking alcohol in the range or doing drugs on the range? I mean, what's your opinion of that, Dave? What would you say there? It, you know, which one? You know, I, I don't want you know a someone grooming a you know a fourteen year old girl on the range um, that's you know going on in a match that I, that I that I may find out about. You know, I don't want that. You know, I don't want somebody you know selling drugs in a match to another competitor you know, at a major championship. I mean, you know, wh what are those rules? I mean, how do you determine what they're going to be? So I feel, and, I, and I've said this, it just needs to be uh, set up that not the board actually, the board will end up making that decision finally, but I think what we need to have is a, um, you know, a, a group that will, and, and I, I said four, and I say four, four shooters and four RMs. Um, to evaluate um, and investigate that. So we do, in, do an independent investigation where we have an outside in, uh, in an investigation group that, um, um, that actually does that and we pay them to do that. Uh, probably be, you know, they're non-biased and or we could, you know, we could have it with the members. Um, we have part members and we have ROs, maybe someone who um, that can put that, compile that information together and said, these are our findings. And we're going to represent this, you know, put this in a, in a big pile and send it to the board. And this is what we found. And the board then will determine what they would do uh, with that. Um, but it, we're a long ways from that. I mean, you know, if you want to take, you know, take what the Olympic Committee does um, and take the 22 pages and chop that in half and get started with it. And um, but, yeah, I, I just think that um, I, I think we have to be able to do something in order to do that. And, and, and if you don't like it and you don't care about it, then I, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, talk to your board members and tell them that you don't want it. If they don't want to vote on it, don't want to vote on it, that's fine. I don't care. I'm just telling you, I'm, that was my feelings on it. I don't want to, you know, get crazy on, on this thing, but it's not is the most important thing uh, on my agenda. That's for sure. Agree? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, and look, I'm, I'm good with whether you want to call it, um, a code of conduct or, you know, what's an acceptable behavior policy or something, you know, but, you know, a framework, I, I'm okay with that. I think the biggest issue people have is just concerned with the last year and a half or so. There's been a lot of um, tempers and people say things online and they feel that people are being punished for saying things online. So I think that's just the biggest concern is that will be used against people expressing their opinion. But point number one you've got is travel expenses. Now, is that your, did you, are these in somewhat order or are they just random as these are your 14 points? Like what is to you, what is the most pressing need? If you were voted in and tomorrow was your first day as USPSA president, to you, what is the first thing that needs to be addressed? 
<clears throat> well, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and put those down on paper. So um, I just, I wrote them out. I mean, could I write okay. another of them? So my, my intentions across the board are to do one thing. I just want to make it, I just want to make the game a simpler, have more fun. And I want, uh, I want the people at the top to essentially treat um, our members um, as members. And I don't want to, I want the game to be like it was back in the eighties and nineties when everybody was there to have fun. I mean, it, it, that was, that was, that's just been always been my intentions um, to the organization is to treat everybody the exactly the same. You know, people come up to me all the time and go like, wow, Kyle, you're a national champion. I'm like, nah, I'm just, dude, I happen to win a match. Okay. And I happen to get a title. It's not, doesn't mean anything to me. You know, to me, it's more the pleasure of, getting out in fellowship and hanging out with my friends, making new friends, meeting new people, getting more involved in the shooting industry. That's, that's all of my, in my intentions has ever been is to be able to have fun. Have I gotten, you know, scuffles with people on the range over the years? Yeah, I sure I have. Okay. And I, and if there was a, probably a code of conduct along the way, I was going like, yeah, I probably should have had my hand slapped and probably, you know, could have been, you know, taken out of the organization for a period of time. Who knows? Um, but I've seen, you know, a hundred more of those over the year. So, so for me, we have, you know, I, I haven't been able to see all of the financials. I have looked at financials plenty of times online because it's a nonprofit. Everybody can look those up and they can see exactly what, um, where money's going at. I think that we need to, um, my, my personal agenda are, what I would always want to see the organization have, Dave, is one thing. I always felt that we need to have our own headquarters, our own history museum, our legacy museum of all the things that have been happened since the 70s in which we have all these, you know, documentations and, you know, and equipment and stuff we've used along the way and have our own facility, have our own range. Uh, so 20 years ago, I found a piece of property in Missouri. I think it's 425 acres or something. And it was beside a national park and where it was set up or beside a, a, a state, big state park that we could have been, no one would have been near us. And I had a couple of us, we had said, hey, we should buy this property. And then as years go on, we should develop it and have our own national championship and have our own, our own headquarters at one place. So that has always been a dream of mine. Um, because we're big enough to be able to do that. I mean, we're scattered all over all over the country now. We're like an online organization. We don't have, you know, a a headquarters per se anymore. You know, headquarters is wherever Zoom is. And so, I mean, you look at Sporting Clays, and you look at um, you look at other, you know, or, or shooting organizations. They have their own headquarters, and you can go and shoot there. You can go. They have training classes. They have RO classes. They have new classes for juniors. I mean. That's been my goal for that over the years. So if we penny pinch, we start watching our money. And I, of course, I know what is happening in the past. And I know what's going on now with financials. And, you know, and I look at some things that's going like, wow, they, they spent a lot of money there. Was that really necessary to do that? So my whole thing is, is that why don't we get back to budgeting and understanding what how a corporation should run? And that's where I come into play. And I have told the board that I feel that we need a CEO to run this organization. We don't need a president. We need a CEO to run it. 
a CEO will then, in turn, look at all the financials, see where everything's going, bring recommendations back to the board. The board then will, in turn, okay, take those recommendations and decide what, how they're going to vote on it. So it's not Todd Jarrett. I'm not a CEO of a nonprofit, but I know a lot of damn good CEOs of, um, of nonprofits that I've been talking with for the last several weeks. And I have done a lot of work in that area and I've learned a lot. And so it's like, they're going like, you got more than 20,000 members? I'm like, yeah, we got more than 20,000. And you don't have a CEO? I said, no, we don't have a CEO. How stupid is that? So we have run this thing like a good old boy network for forever. And my personal yeah. feelings is you need a CEO. I would actually, if they run a CEO, don't pay me. Now we dropped the pay from Mike Foley from $130,000 to what the next president's going to get at 50,000. That's what they voted in in last minutes. Okay. Right. So $50,000, uh, don't get me wrong. It's not a lot of money to me. Uncle, you know, Uncle, Uncle Joe is going to take, you know, 25, 30, 40% of that. And so I, you know, I don't, that's not a lot of money for me. I'm not doing this for the money. If I could get the board to agree to hire a CEO, uh, I know some good people out there who have been in the firearms industry, uh, who have now run corporations because of my years of being in the business. We should approach them and we should say, we need a CEO. And the only thing we need is for a president is a figurehead. We need, we need a, you know, a president that can walk into a company, um, walk into Springfield or walk into SIG or walk into these other uh, companies and say, Hey, we want to do business with you and we want to want you to be able to, you know, you know, provide a service for us, you know, for our members, you know, whether it be a new gun, new holster, new guns, new belts, holsters, ammunition, whatever. But that person needs to be that person. We need, you know, like they do at the NRA. You know, Wayne Lampierre, whether you like him or not, uh, you know, Wayne has done done a disservice to the NRA over the years, um, robbing the organization of money. And and I have a I have a pain, okay, for that. And I'm an NRA member and have been for decades. And so for me personally, um, I don't want to see the organization go that way. I want to see somebody responsible at the top to be able to understand how a nonprofit should work, how it operate, and should um, then go in front of the board. The board will make those decisions and go off the recommendations of the CEO. After that's done, the following year, where can we where can we save money at? So if we're losing four hundred thousand plus dollars a year at the national championship, and you've been doing that for decades. Why would you continue to lose that kind of money? So there, one of my, one of my key points down there is to turn all the area championships um, in conjunction with the area championship with the national championship. So, and I'm doing it for one reason. I want to be able to understand how we can bank more money, put a, a fair amount of money away. So potentially if the board says, hey, Todd, I think your idea of a, um, of a range and headquarters and a, and a history and legacy a museum, that's valid. And I, we would love to be able to hear that. What do you have on paper? I'm working on it. So I think that I've talked to a couple of the board members and they were going like, I think that's a good idea. But they're going like, oh, we can't do that because the charter says we can't do it. And I've had several members of the board tell me, Todd, that's not going to happen. Um, because we can't change a charter. Uh, yes, we can. I have been on the phone and talked to, 
you know, people who run nonprofits. I've talked to accounting firms who do, do nothing but nonprofits. Going like, of course you can change a charter. You can do anything you want to do. And they go like, mm. if you don't change a charter, guess what? Why don't we get an LLC? So I, I you, know, you can run an LLC and do a backdoor, and now the LLC then actually reimburses the nonprofit and goes back and forth in that to be able to have a facility, a building, land, whatever you want, assets. All those things can happen. Um, whether we change the charter or we do an LLC. That's fact. And I'm sure some of the members out there who are smart businessmen, you're going like, yeah, Todd, Todd knows exactly what he's talking about. But no one talks about it. And I have been saying this for 20 years that you guys, this is not a good old boys club. We need to run this as a professional organization. And that is my, and that is my only um, you know, intent is to make the organization better and get more people involved in shooting. Yeah, um, I think I've said it on the podcast, but I, I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, so I don't know. But I'm a member of the Scout Sniper Association, and you know, it was being run by a bunch of either active Marines or former Marines, and and nobody really knew the law of all of you know all of the um shoot i can't even think of the word right now but in, anyway they ended up doing exactly what you said they hired a ceo for a not a non-profit ceo who understood one the laws and the rules of nonprofits and got everything on track and then we could take the organization back over but i think the idea of having a ceo is uh the way to go I completely agree. So <clears throat> that I just want to be able to get, I want to be able to get in the back in the black um, and be able to, you know, now if the board has no interest in doing that with the current board. So we got a couple of new people coming on the board. Um, Ted Murphy, who is a phenomenal financial guy. Uh, Ted is a financial whiz and my hat goes off to him and um, people may or may not like him. Um, but you, you, if you know what Ted's doing behind the scenes financially and looking at and going over uh, and making sure that or understanding how an audit should work. We're doing a, a true audit this year uh, on the organization, which it should be. We should have an audit done every single year. I mean, that's just a, a given in a nonprofit. OK, you find an accounting firm, you send them all the information. We want to see it. So when it's posted, yeah, we get to see that. OK. But we don't do an audit on the on the organization every year. It gets done. Uh, I mean, sometimes several years goes by and they don't do an audit on it. So if I was in charge and I was a CEO, it's going like we're doing a damn audit every year. And that's just it. That's how it's going to work. So my whole thing is that we lose all this money um, at the national championship. I think they lost over four hundred thousand dollars last year uh, running the national championship. So I was going like, OK, why don't we why don't we take a look at um well, I'm going to look at something completely fresh. Now, in the beginning, they told me, oh, Todd, that's never going to happen. Now, how can that, how can that, you run a national championship within the area champ and within the area match? I went, okay, I, I, you know, I don't know all the answers, but I, what I do know is that it can happen. So think about it. Let's say that we have eight divisions. Um, I think we need to get rid of limited 10, um, in my opinion. A limited 10 is, 
it's just a dying breed. There's only 12 people in the, in the entire nation that shoot it, maybe 14. And I'm probably going to aggravate those 14 or 18 people to shoot limited 10 nationwide. Um, you know, even the guys in California um, that, you know, uh, they're only allowed to have 10 round magazines, but it's, it's mysterious that every single body that I watch on film has a 30 round mag in their gun. Um, so are they breaking the law? I think, you know, that's something that they need to understand that, you know, breaking the law in your own state, that's a state thing uh, than a federal thing. So for us, um, I, I, I say we do all eight national championships uh, under area matches. We bring in a skeleton crew, and that skeleton crew from headquarters would be to help out in uh, something that may need for practice score. Um, we may need somebody, uh, additional CROs, um, because all your REMs, all your CROs, all your ROs who are volunteers who love to put on these matches, they're there to help it out because they love the game. I mean, I, mean, I, I can't tell you how many times over the years that I go help out in matches over the years, you know, every eight back in the day. I mean, you know, state championships, you know, section matches over the years back in the 80s and 90s. You know, we were there building props, you know, a month ahead of time. So so if we take an area championship, so quick and quick and nasty on it is that uh, let's say we, we say area eight. So we're in area eight, you and I are. And we say area eight's coming up. And this year we're going to have the area eight championship and co coincide with the limited nationals. So typically they get about 450 as an average shooters per area match. Uh, area six were just last weekend. Uh, they were a little light at 401. They had some issues down there. Um, and they didn't fill the match like, like they wanted to. Uh, area eight filled up in a blink of an eye because they, you know, they, it's just a different style of match than it is at area six, um, which is nationwide. I mean, every, every area championships has its own style. So if you go shoot the national championship now, you know what the style is going to be. It's going to be bland. It's exactly the same thing every single year. You know, I like to have a little different style. I like, I like what Area 2 does. I like what Area 3 does. I like Area 4. I like Area 8. All these area championships, which I'm, I'm shooting Area 4 um, here next month, and Area 1 this year that I'm going out to. I haven't shot Area 1 in a long time. But they're going to have a different style because – you know, they follow under the same rules. All those things already have been approved by Troy. Okay. NROI has already approved the stages. So when they get there, um, you know, say, say Troy shows up at the area match. Okay. And he shows up and say, okay, well, you know, you guys didn't think about this. This could be a problem for getting thrown out because I've been doing it for a long time. Um, you already have tons of volunteers. You got help there um, that are going to set the stages up. Uh, and other than, you know, having an area, two area matches on the same weekend, that is the only issue that I see at this point as far as having a national championship fall on the same weekend, two in the same weekend, which we don't want to have that happen. So you, you could probably shoot, if you wanted to, you could shoot eight nationals if you wanted. So they go, well, Todd, how would you actually do that? Well, we're going to have a ranking yeah. system. We will have a ranking system for 60 people to automatically get their first slot to go to the match. The first 60 people are taken away off that board. So now you only have 390 people that can shoot the match. Now that area match may, they, they go like, Hey, we want to extend an extra day. We want to start on Wednesday instead of starting on th on Thursday um, because we got plenty of help. We got plenty of guys that want to do it. And here we go. 
Now, you can still shoot your area championship, and we're going to hold the limited nationals at, um, at, at the area eight championship. Now, you can shoot open, PCC, single stack, revolver, whatever you want, and you can still be the area champion for that, but the national championship will be crowned for limited at that match. Okay. So, so what I'll do is we take from years past, so from GM all the way to down to D class. So depending on where you rank at in the country, whether we do it through whatever, through practice score, we figure it out. And which, you know, these are things that need to be worked out. Is it going to happen next year? Is it ever going to happen? It may not never happen. But now we're going to bring in five or six people from headquarters to help run that area championship instead of 60 or 70. We spent $30,000 in meals at the last nationals. $30,000 in meals. You got to feed your people. I get that. Okay. But these area championships, they seem to do a better job at how they manage hotels, everything along the way, uh, people that are going to come and work on it. I mean, uh, look at some of the matches. I mean, go down, you know, we had, uh, you know, down area six, I mean, probably had, you know, 30 or 40 people that could sleep in their own bed at night because they volunteered, you know, to work the match. Now, we got CROs and REMs all across the country. They may live 20 minutes away from the actual, um, from the match in, you know, in area eight. So we don't have to pay them. Okay. We may give them, you know, a food allowance or maybe gas allowance, but we don't have to put them on an airplane and let them fly, you know, 300 miles or let them drive two and a half days and get all that mileage back and forth because mileage adds up. There is a lot of money you know, for staffing mm -hmm. to drive in 90% of them drive because, you know, a lot of them are older and they're going like, I don't want to deal with the airplane. I want to bring my guns in my car. Okay. So it's probably cheaper to fly them than it is to drive them and even give them a car in, in some cases because some of these, you know, some of these, um, you know, expenses that I've seen in the past, you know, people spending eight, nine hundred thousand dollars on an airline flight. Okay. To come down. And I was going like, Wow, could you have maybe done a better job, maybe four or five months in advance, maybe gotten a better price on an airline ticket? I mean, you know, who is there going to, you know, take a look at things like that? So I'm just bitching is all I'm doing, um, to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> well, because I, I know what goes on behind the scenes. Right. Well, what do you do with something? Um, it's an interesting concept, but what do you do with something like Carry Optics Nationals? at an area match because it is so popular and that thing you know right now uh this is the second time they sent out the wait list and i was a hundred like 160 the first time now i'm 93 so and the match is still full so how do you do like a carry optics where you or any nationals too as well but particular to carry optics where it's so popular and two I feel like there's only a few ranges that could handle an, uh, a national match size event because are we talking 21 stages? Well, I mean, it, it, does it have to be 21? Uh, can it be 18 quality stages? It don't have to be 21. I mean, I've shot, you know, I've shot stages, you know, in nationals over the years and other major matches only have, you know, 12, 15, 18 stages. And they were quality stages. You know, why do you have to have 20, 21, 24 stages? So, so for me, you just answered your own question. You're going like, Todd, I'm, I'm on the waiting list. 
Okay, well, that, that would be no different than if you were to shoot an area match. There are area people with area matches that are on it. So if I was going to hold an area championship and hold the Karyopics Nationals right today, and I was, and it was up to me to be able to put where I was going to put that, it would go at Rio Salada. They have the facility. They have the people. That is the biggest match. Now, you can go and shoot open. You can shoot any uh, other, you know, division that you want, but you could end up with 450 people that want to shoot the match and carry optics, but they're on the waiting list. Um, you know, I think that we should uh, essentially have a waiting period for um, other people to get into the match, which is things that, you know, they're, they're you know, logistics that you have to work out across the board. But if you don't get to shoot the carry optics match because you're on a waiting list, I mean, I know people on a waiting list that can't get in. But we need – what is the right. national championship for? National championship is to crown the best of the best, okay? Correct. So who, who, who should go there first, okay? So a guy who is – no offense to a, a guy who's a brand-new member. So, I mean, I've got guys, in the, you know, that I've known over the years going like, hey, how long you been shooting? Oh, it's my first year. I think I'm going to go to national championship. But have you ever shot or um, – a level two match. Well, no, I want to go to a national and shoot it. I was going like, dude, you probably need to go shoot a level two, maybe a level three match before you go to the national championship because you need to get some experience um, before you go there. And then you're taking away a slot potentially for an individual like yourself, Dave, who's on the waiting list. You might have, you know, might have 40 people in front of you that might be the first year going to the carry optics nationals. Is that fair? I, in my opinion, I'm not sure if that's fair or not. I don't know what fair is in the sense yeah, yeah. where I, I, you know, it, it is a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do, but this is something we could experiment with. Uh, you could definitely run trial run, run runs with this. We could do the single stack nationals. We could do, um, we, we could do production, which is really production nationals is really, there's not a lot of people signed up for it. It's the limited right. nationals is not even full. I mean, it's not even halfway full. I mean, I looked at, I looked online the other day on, um, you know, on practice score, and the wife and I were looking at. It, she's going like, "Look at this!" I went, I'm, I'm, I'm scanning through there. I was going like, "This, this match is not even full. This is sad that no one wants to shoot iron sights." So now we're going to go to a match. Let's say we don't fill that match this year. We could lose 150, 200 thousand dollars by just expenses going to that match. Because if we don't fill it, if we don't get 450, you know, we're not going to fill that match. We're going to lose money on it. So this is a prime example. We could take all four divisions right off the bat and shove them in an area match and have a national championship within an area match because that flavor may not be conducive for iron sights. It might be a tougher match. Let's say area eight's always a tough match. What they're doing up in Ayalani. I mean, those guys up there, Anthony, holy crap, that guy puts on a good match up there, and it's hard as hell. And it's, <laughs> I shot it last year, and uh, I went up and shot a local match up there with them on the last couple of months, and they put on 10 stages every month. What a great club, and those guys do a phenomenal job. And, um, I mean, so – but I think that's um, – but it's something that um, that we need to look at. And, and am, I, am I saying that it logistically and, and you know um, – Money-wise, it, it may not operate, may not work, but it's something we should take a look at, and that's my my feeling. Oh, Todd, what do you think about? Okay, well, let's take Iron Sights Nationals. 
it's there to crown the Iron Sight National Champions, the four of them. But what about okay, we're two mo- we're 60 days out. It's only half full. Why not then just open it up for all right, let's I'll use myself an example. I couldn't get into carry optics nationals. Plus I just had um, meniscus repair on my knee. So I even if I got in at this point, I don't know that I would shoot carry I would probably just decline my slot because I don't want to put that stress on my knee at this moment. Right. But three months from now, I'm like, man, I really wish I could have shot a national championship. Um, so you open up iron sight nationals for other shooters. Now I can go shoot a three-day match with my carry optics gun, help fill the match so it doesn't lose any money, and it helps with titling those champions. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the organization, I mean, if they fill the match, you're still going to lose money. I mean, even if it's half full or full, they lose money um, at, every national, at every national championship that they hold. So it doesn't matter if they fill the match halfway or not. It's going to, you know, it, it's, it's all, all about expenses, the expenses right. for the match. You know, in their case, they're actually going to, I mean, it's, they're going to really suffer. So I don't, I don't, I don't really disagree with your um, sentiment there um, of being able to fill the rest of the match. And, and, you know, you guys come and shoot open, shoot lemonade, shoot whatever you want to shoot, you know, carry optics gun. Actually, it's a great idea if you just want to come and shoot it. Um, if it was up to me, uh, I would cut the match, you know, from a, you know, essentially a four-day match. I would cut it to a two-day match. So I'm cutting half the expenses out. So now, let's say we only get okay. 200 shooters come to it. I would say there's no reason to have a three-day match. We're going to have a two-day match, okay? And we're going to crown that individual and in all those categories with it, but we're not going to have 24 stages. We're going to have 16 stages, okay? Um, and we're going to give you 16 quality stages. So it doesn't matter if we shoot one stage, okay, and Niels Jonas wins the limited national off of one stage or if he does it off of 20. He's still a national champion. It doesn't matter. So do you know my whole feelings is get save on expenses cut back on the match there's no reason at all to run this as a four-day match so now you cut back on stage designs you cut back on everything um and you save money within the organization so that's you know that's that's just that's just pure you know that's just pure accounting is all that is okay agree yeah absolutely so I, I mean, I, I feel like some of those, you know, like Iron Sights and Nationals, like you said. I mean, how many? I don't know. I th- I think some people sign up for some of the divisions just to be able to shoot a less competitive match, like limited ten. I mean, how many? If you're if you have limited, if you have Iron Sight Nationals, limited in production will be your two big ones. Revolver will be smaller. Single stack will be above that, but like your limited 10, I feel like the only people who would be compete in limited 10 would be people just like, okay, I'm not going to win the others. I have a better shot here. So I'll shoot that one. Of course. Yeah. They're sort of trying to, so. you know, trying to, you know, they, they beat three people. I mean, um, so what we have at the, uh, area six. So I, I think I, I think I, uh, I factored it out. Um, I think there was only, um, it was, I think it was less than 14% of the people that shot area six last weekend, uh, shot an iron sight gun. It was oh, 86, wow. 86 or 87% of the people shot 
on some type of optic on top of their gun. That's sad. That's very sad. I mean, so. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been looking at the numbers and carry optics is consistently 45 to 47% with open being about 22%. So yep. yeah, that already right there puts you at 70% just between carry optics and open. Yeah, so I think they had, uh, I think it was 48% of the match last weekend was carry optics. Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, I kind of, I, when, they, when they post them, I kind of scan through it and wrote down a few things. So, But yeah, um, I think that's something that, um, that we need to, you know, understand where the game is going at. Um, you know, whether we, you know, we have one big national championship, um, you know, I, I know they've done that, you know, in, in a week and done everything at one time. Um, if you're going to make money at it, you know, um, and be able to be in the black across the board instead of losing money, I mean, you're going to have to have, you know, 700 competitors in which, you know, we can't hold a match uh, in this country. There's only a few places that can hold that. So think about the U.S. Nationals all holds 450 competitors. Every single area match typically can shoot around 450 competitors. So essentially now we have eight, we have twice as many people shooting the national championship. Okay. And that those individuals get a chance if they want to, to shoot every single area, every, every single area championship within that match is now the national championship. So essentially, you know, JJ Bracaza, he could win, he could win every single national. I mean, what, what would that be, you know, to his career? That would be amazing, you know? So right. it's like, uh, those are the things that, remember this organization, there's a lot of people within this organization uh, that rely on USPSA to stay alive and be, and be strong and, and sovereign. A lot of people stay in business because of this organization. This is why we need to be able to understand how to run this organization correctly as a national organization. So that's my that's my my overall take, and that's my my my, my biggest right that I have, you know, for the organization. And there's two more things I wanted to talk about I, that I found interesting that you have. Um, you said we should consider starting an industry advisory board, as well yeah. as a shooters advisory board. So what? How do you envision that? I see that as. Um, as as any advisory board for any um, any corporation, that's just typical. You will bring bring advisories in, uh, bring them in once a year. We have a small match or something. We bring all the sponsors that deal with us in front site, all of our sponsors. We bring those people in. They have great ideas to be able to you know propel maybe membership, maybe propel their business, and how we can we can push their business in a in a in a in a more, um, you know, profitable way, um, how, you know, you were building relationships is what that is. So uh, you're not building relationships over emails. They, I need to be in your, I need right. to be sitting in there with you. Okay. Uh, yeah. I've been, been in business. I have, I have three businesses myself currently right now that I run myself. Um, I got an HVAC company. Uh, I got my own shooting company and I got a real estate company um, that I have. So, all of those keeps me busy, um, but I'm building relationships with local businessmen all the time. And so the same thing, if we were to build a range or 
we want to be able to incorporate those local, you know, um, businesses in that local area, um, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be politicians in the area, we need to be able to have those people that understand and be able to go forward and have that conversation. And, and that's how relationships are done. And that's how business is done in America. And that's where I, I think that we should do that. As far as the, um, the shooter, um, um, you know, part of that, I think that we should be listening to um, an advisory board for the top guys. Okay. What do you guys like to see? What do you, what would you like to see different? Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying every single top guy, I'm not talking about every single professional shooter we have, but we need the people who have influence um, within their companies and their industries that they're working with. It's going like, what would you like to see? What problems that you're seeing and just get them, you know, that's a once a year thing. We all sit around and, um, and have a, have a conference on it. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah, it might cost a few dollars and we may spend four or $5,000 uh, for that, you know, to sit around. But what else can we gain from that as a business, okay, to be able to grow the organization? And that's my my number one thing here is strictly growth. Um, like I want to do a um, a junior nationals. I have said for years uh, after Mike Voigt passed away, I was going like, I mentioned to Mike, I went, why don't we have a junior nationals, man? Just strictly a junior nationals. So, I made a few phone calls and I got a range and a sponsor that will commit to it right off the bat right now. Todd, you just tell us when you want to do it and it's, it's set it up and we will have, I said, strictly going to be nothing but juniors. So I like to change the junior category, the age point of that from essentially probably 11 to 14 and 15 to 18. Um, if mm. I was, I'm just throwing this out here. Um, but there would be two different categories, um, sub junior or, or junior junior and a junior class for that and have a national championship strictly for them, but bring in some of the top guys to be able to do classes with them, bring their parents in. Maybe that would be an open, uh, open day that we can bring in new people to understand this is our junior championship and we want, you know, the locals to come in there. We want people to come in, want their parents. We want, you know, other siblings to be able to come in to watch their kids and their their brothers and sisters shoot, uh, you know, and be able to give an award for that. Um, I definitely want to uh, explore that. Uh, in, and if it makes business sense, then I want to do it. Um, also, I would love to be able to um, bring back the, Mac, the, the Matt Risen uh, reward, reward uh, and, and um, for, for military. I want to do a military law enforcement shoot is what I like to do. I would love to see mm. that done. Uh, strictly only military and law enforcement. So when those individuals sign up for the match, they are automatically become a member of USPSA. So we have, we have to we have to you know fork out um, two hundred dollars. I mean two hundred members. You know, uh, but we in incorporate that into the price of running the match. So maybe we get a new hundred new members out of that the following year. But it's strictly for law enforcement and military because law enforcement does not like to shoot with civilians. Now, the military guys, which I'm on the mecca of it in my area, so I shoot with yeah. a lot of military guys, um, whether it be out of Virginia Beach area uh, or out of Fort Bragg area, amongst mm -hmm. other uh, areas. So uh, I, I would definitely would want to put on a, a match there. I've spoken to uh, several key people that are in the military. They're going like, Todd, you'd fill it in a, you'd fill it in a couple hours. 
and I was kind of, wow, that's entertaining. So um, that's something that, um, you know, I think that we should should explore um, and and be able to um, have a separate, maybe a separate organization in there um, with within the organization. Who knows? Yeah, I, it would be interesting if um, we could put something together fr from an organizational standpoint. Like Camp Lejeune houses, uh, I want to say it's sixty thousand Marines. Yep. So it'd be, yep, it'd be right. yeah. So it'd be interesting, you know, to be able to travel to, you know, have an East Coast side where you can do something at Lejeune for those guys, and then another one at Pendleton because there's another sixty thousand on the West Coast, and right. who, I mean. I when when I was in the Marines, it was all NRA bullseye bullseye style qualification stuff, and I know it's changing, and that would just kind of help the two organizations, you know, one with their mission and and the other with competition. So it'd be right. very interesting. But well, you hit on the other point was the junior nationals, which I find very interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, so I think. Um, <clears throat> For me personally, that's something that I think we should do. And, I, and, and actually, um, um, I, I messaged um, Maggie, Maggie um, Reese Voigt uh, the other day, and, and I said, Maggie, I want you to be, um, I want you to be involved in this because Mike was, um, you know, big with juniors, and so I think I, mm -hmm. I really want to call this the Michael Voigt inaugural junior national championship, and I want Mike's Voigt uh, name attached to that um, because Mike had done so much for juniors in the past and that was a passion for him. So I want, I'd love, love to be able to see that happen. Um, you know, if it makes a good business sense, um, then we should, should, should consider it, but it's something I, I think that we should essentially do. Okay. <clears throat> the, um, the last thing I, I wanted to ask you about, which I found also interesting was point number 13. You said, should we run our own USPSA World Championship? So would that be inviting IPSC shooters from around the world to come? And then whoever wins, because like in years past, when Eric Grafell has won nationals, he couldn't be the national champion because he's not a USPSA member per se. Sure. But this would be something that would, if Eric won open, then he is the USPSA World Champion type of a not thing. Not really, not really. This is the, okay. so I, I, if I wanted to, and I said that we should done, we should have done this years ago. I, I, I think that, and I've always said that we want to have our matches and our teams ready to go a year out. So I would hold the USPSA World Championship a year out from the World Shoot. So it would happen okay. every three years. So what I want to do is I want to be able to get our teams, get the best shooters ready to go. But I, I would like to be able to change in how the point system works. I still say that we have a four-man team for and, and, and ladies' team and juniors' team that goes to the world shoot every single year. And there are times where I, I think that our alternates or are, are some folks on the team may not be the strongest, um, you know, to be able to make that team and we have lost out on several of the teams um, at the World Shoot over the years. I feel that we need to be able to have, you can almost pick the top three in almost every division. But the fourth one should be picked by the president. And I've said that to John Amadon, who was the president 
uh, or an NROI guy years ago who actually did that. And John goes, yeah, that'll be a lot of work and this and that. I was going to, no. So a year out, so when the Nationalist is over with, just think about this. So three or four years ago, no one you know who what Christian Saylor really was. I mean, we knew he was an upcoming, he was good and everything. But, you know, who would know that he would be a world champion in this very short period of time? So sure. if, this, if I see people coming along and I follow everybody nationwide, I am, I am always watching new shooters, people who are, you know, up and comers, people at the top of the game, uh, people who are winning, you know. Uh, so you want to be able to say to that individual, it's kind of like you want to watch them. So, so what they've done, you know, let's say we're, we're three years out from the first nationals now. The world, our our world championship. That the guy who won beat Chris Tilly last weekend. Uh, who is this guy? Okay, well that guy may be he may be the national champion in three years, but he may not gain enough points. He, he may say he has gun problems next year. You know, let's say the following year he gets sick and can't go to the match, but he wins the national championship the year before, or, or wins that match that that same year. I mean, okay, you didn't cumulate cumulate enough points. But guy, you're the hot guy in the circuit right now. I'm going to hand pick you to be on the team. So I go. want to pick the best four, you know, individuals, you know, whether it be juniors, ladies, uh, whatever division, men's across the board, because we want to go to the world shoot and have the best people representing us to get on the podium. That's all I always wanted to do over the years. I mean, I have a lot of friends of mine that have been on the teams over the years that should never have been there. And, you know, we didn't win the teams. We were fifth or sixth or fourth or something, never make the podium. The whole thing about it is, is that we want to send the best of the best is what we want to do. And the only thing I'm saying is, the only thing I would change is that let the alternate be picked by the president. That's all I kind ask. Of, kind of sounds like Ryder Cup where in Bingo. golf, where the, from. the team captain, okay. Yeah, he yep, gets to select somebody. Yep. All right. So Makes I got perfect sense now. <laughs> yeah, sure enough. So, I mean, we follow sports all the time. So mm -hmm. while we're talking, while we're talking at, uh, there's another controversial one that um, I've had ROs um, send me messages going like, I'll never work, Todd. We can't use, you know, we can't use, you know, a video for, um, you know, for arbitration. Yeah, we can. Yeah, sure we can. Okay. Uh, this is, a, you know, we live in a world of high tech equipment. Um, and they're going like, well, how's a guy going to download his camera off of his off of his GoPro and put him in? I'm going like, well, I, you know what? Uh, I, I'm sure that some techie guy out there will eventually figure out how to download and a split second into his phone and be able to show you if that guy had a football, if that guy actually shot over the berm, if that individual, you know, um, broke the 180. So if I have a camera going and because I've been a recipient of this a few years ago um, of getting DQ uh, from somebody who was standing 20 yards away underneath a tent. And I have an RO that's standing right over top of me telling me that I did not break the one E along with another individual who is on the other side of me. that says who was an RO on the stage, Todd, you didn't break the 180, but he, they were superseded by the CRO. So I was going like, but I have it on film. And they're going like, and, you know, I, of course, I, I made a comment. I was going like, I have it on film. I didn't break the 180. I didn't even get close to it. Okay. That's somebody make an arbitrary, you know, judgment of what they think they saw in a split second. This game is super fast anymore. 
it's extremely footwork is 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 always going to be something that people get foot you know foot faults for that they didn't. It's happened to me multiple times, you know. And I and I can show the RO. I'm going like, dude, look at here. Now, has there been a precedent in the past? Okay, are using um, video for arbitration? Yes, it happened to me, and I actually used it uh, at Area Five about three years ago with the match director. My tie was not in a rule book, and I allowed to do this. I was going like, so the RO punched in my score I, instead of putting a one, you know, a, a 1239 run, he put me down as a 2239 run. But what happened was as soon as I shot that stage, they had me to move automatically to another stage. And I didn't even get to see the, the, um, the actual, um, the pad in order to approve that. So now you've got to go right now. So, the next day I came back and I noticed that my score that I had, my wife had actually beat me. And I was going like, yo, Kerry, you're, you're good. You didn't beat me by four seconds on the stage. Okay. So we went back and we actually had it on video. Okay. And on video. So I went back to the master record. I went in, um, went to the master record and I showed him, I said, this is wrong. It's not correct. And it needs to be corrected. Um, and I, I'm just telling you that, you know, I just found it out when the scores pop out on practice score, you know, later that night, which is like at nine o'clock at night, they had some issues and they didn't get it um, uploaded until then. So, so I went to the master record and master record goes, yeah, Todd, he goes, um, wow. He goes, we're not supposed to do this, but I want to show it to an arbitration committee. And they did. An arbitration committee agreed with me. Um, we went back, talked, they went back, talked to the ROs, the CROs, and what they do, they went, yeah, that's probably not right. Todd didn't do it in 22 seconds. He did it in 12 seconds. And um, and so then that happened. So, um, and they actually let me reshoot the stage, and, and uh, I beat my wife, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> now, well, and a few years ago at Area 8, um, I, forget, I don't remember if it was Carry Optics or production or what, but Nils won Area 8. But people were showing that they made an error entering in the times and it should have, I don't remember if it was Jacob who should have won or Mason should have won area eight in that same division. Yep. And it was, a, it was like a week later, Nils was like, Hey, yeah, it's been shown that the other person should have won. So hats off to that person. But so I agree that that type of thing, there are uses for video. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, if let's say that you have a problem on the stage and you get DQ'd and I'm filming you, but I have somebody else arbitrarily off to the side filming you and they're going like, oh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't break the 180 or, you know, but we the, the the vague area that we have to look at is that you get DQ'd. OK, and I'm a competitor of you. So I, I'm filming you because. I want to see what you're doing on the stage. And I realized that um, you, um, you you got called for a 180 call, but I got a camera just sitting over here to go like, yeah, Dave didn't break the 180, but I'm not going to show him my camera. Right. I'm not going to show him that you, because I want you kicked out because I want to beat you for the match. So far as competitiveness goes in the gaming side of that, you know, so we have problems that we need to rectify there, but there are reasons um, that I have seen hundreds of times where people have on video, Todd, I didn't do this. I went, yeah, you're exactly right. But there's nothing in the rule book that says we can use that for arbitration. You are correct. I'm sorry that you spent $6,000 of your money, okay, 
preparing for this match and then coming out to shoot this match and flying in all the expenses to get DQ'd on your second stage. I'm sorry about that. And you have video proof that you did not DQ. Okay. If it's conclusive, it's no different than, you know, calling, you know, you know, out on first base on, in the MLB game. Why do we go back and review that now? Because ROs make mistakes. Range officers make mistakes. You know, referee, referees make mistakes all the time. So we review them. Okay. And we should give that individual the benefit of the doubt. So if I have a camera on the stage and I see it, okay, I would recommend that everybody from here on out, if you get a bad call, post it online somewhere, show it out there. So the more we have, the more that we can actually, you know, evaluate these things and determine as an RO or CRO, an REM, that they can go like, yeah, we, that, that's a good call right there. And that guy should not have been DQ'd or he should not um, had a got a footfall uh, or he, he reloaded and he shot into, you know, more than nine feet away because we weren't sure of the distance on the berm. I mean, he was standing right behind this part right here. And if you can conclusively see that that guy is, you know, is not at fault, then why should we have that? I mean, that's my, that's my opinion. I think that's something that I think all the members, me as a member um, who have seen it happen to myself and many other people over the years, I think we should, we should put that in play and figure out how to do it correctly. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I listen to a lot of different podcasts to learn, you know, just things in general, but I always hear how powerful these cell phones are and everybody's got them on the stage and people are recording stuff and the, the quality of those are amazing. So I don't understand why we're not using that technology to our benefit. So, well, I know that, I know that the, um, NROI guys, they do not want to see it. They don't want to, they don't want to have it. Um, but, um, and it is one of the, one of the key points that I'm going to push and I'm going to push if it doesn't happen this year and it happens next year, it's not going to happen the following year. I mean, I'm going to push for it. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something that, um, we need to be able to have. It's, it, it's not going to work in your benefit every single time. No, nope. I, I, I can see that. And you're going to have guys who are going like, you know, I was at 179 and you told me, you know, there's where stage design is actually more, actually more important than anything. And every time I go to a match, I'm um, going like, you know, I will tell friends of mine to go in there. I will walk up to the squad, you know, even though that squad may be, um, you know, competitors that I'm competing against. I was going like, I still don't, don't want anybody, in, you know, anybody to get DQ'd. Uh, for a 180 violation. So my whole thing is going like, hey guys, you better watch out. This is a 180 violation right here. Watch, watch, watch your muzzle here. And I will say that in all my local matches I go to, I was, you know, emphasize that to everybody in my squad. They're going like, guys, be careful here. You know, we're practicing local matches to go to bigger matches. So these are things you need to look out for. And you got some ROs that, you know, they are, you know, they're, they, they get, they get your jollies off on DQing people. I, that's just the fact. I mean, I have, I've had tons of messages sent to me uh, after this, and I've had ROs going like telling me, yeah, Todd, I've been ROing for a long time, and I have been with ROs that they, they, they want to, um, you know, get some type of infraction on a shooter. That's their goal. You know, is that, is that what, to all of them? Absolutely not. We have some phenomenal ROs that I have been, you know, they, they told me to make ready for 
35 years, 40 years, some of them, and um, that, that's been around the game. So I have a lot of respect for the, the RO staff that we have. Do we got some bad apples? Like we got bad members? Yeah, yeah, we got them. You know, that's just, we need to weed them out or we need to educate them because we're here to assist the shooter through the stage in the safest manner as possible, okay? With as much professionalism as possible. And that's the way I want to see this organization run. We are a professional organization, and I cannot say that anymore, okay, than where we are right now. This is where I want to go at. This is where we need to be at. Sounds like a good idea to me. Here's another one. Yeah, the rule book. There you go. I'll print out. So it's 122 pages long. 122 pages long. I got to take an RO class in in um, next month. So I printed out so I can start reviewing it, looking over it. And so I've been to RO. I've been RO. I was an RO back in the 80s, but I never re-upped my RO status over the years um, because I RO all the time. The people that know me um, and you know local clubs, I RO all the time. You, you know, me. Always, yeah, I'm always trying to assist people through, new shooters through, people that uh, that I know might be uh, a little excited, you know, and, and they're, you know, going like, hey, just need to slow down, have a little fun. We're just here for fun. It's going to be another match next month and so on and so on. Uh, but I want to get people safely through the stage. So I want I want you to have a good time. I want you to be fun. I got people that have never have never met me before, but they may know who I am. And go like, oh my God, Todd Jarrett's RO me on the stage. I've been I've been not doing anything stupid. They're like, man, just have a good time. I said, just be safe and you know, don't point a loaded gun at me, and I won't point one back. I mean, that's just pretty much the way I am, you know. <laughs> but I, I do, I do this rule book. This one thing I want to do. I want to put a advisory group together of shooters who are very talented in writing and people who I've known for many, many years. And I want to have a um, advisory board to go through the rule book. And I want to, I want to simplify some things in it. And I also want, but those shooters will be also, I want to have an REM um, group with that. So if I do four or five shooters and I do four or five REMs, what can we do to simplify the book? The book, when I first started, was only like 12 or 13 pages, maybe 20 pages at the most. Okay. And we got through the 80s of having a lot of fun. The book got a little bit bigger in the 90s. Did we, there are things that we need to be able to have in the book, okay, over the years. Absolutely. And there are some great things in here we have learned, you know, through the organization that we need to have a rule for that. But some of these rules, they just go on and on and on. And and so I had an RO tell me, going, well, Todd, don't, don't you realize that the book is a part of gaming? I was going like, yeah, I do know that. I do know it's a part of gaming. But that rule book should not be a part of gaming when that buzzer goes off and I pull the trigger and I shoot the first target with two A's on it. That, that book does one thing and one thing only, okay? I need to have a, a lawyer on retainer, okay, when I go to the national championship to be able to understand what was on page 49 contradicts page 59, which is 105. We'll go back to we know, go back to page six. Okay, so you need to be someone who has been doing the game for decades to understand the rule book. So you always, you know, have a chance to 
any arbitration of winning that arbitration if you know that rule book inside and out. And you go find an RO that's been doing it for years that's friendly or a buddy of yours going like, Todd, you need to go look at 29.6.29.14 and then coincide with that with page 73 with 79.1.-20 and you'll get off. I'm going like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Let me go get my lawyer. But we don't need, we need a simplification of the, of the rule book, in my opinion. And now, can we simplify it and knock out 20% of it? Can we have a, I think every single stage that's designed, if the, if the description on the stage is written correct, correctly, you don't really need a rule book. You need to understand the ramifications of being disqualified for unsafe gun handling, okay? And understand how the scoring is done, which we all know what an A, a B, you know, an A, C, and a D looks like these days. Okay, we know what a hit on a steal is. We have rules for scoring purposes, and almost everyone knows that. But it's all the hidden stuff in between that I think that we could actually sit down and clarify and make it a little simpler for people that are going through the um, process of becoming an RO in the future, because I got people who are ROs going like, I don't have to go through that RO. That's, just, that's the craziest book I've ever seen, Todd. Um, like I got a friend of mine called me up the other day. He had his CRO, um, his um, membership or, or um, for him to re-up his um, CRO status. So he calls me up. He goes, have you read the book lately? I went, yeah, I'm looking through it now. He goes, oh, my God, I cannot believe all these stupid rules they're putting in. This is CRO. The guy has been around for, you know, been around for decades. So he's just laughing about it. So he calls me up and go like, God, that would be a great tool if you could actually get that rule book um, a little bit more simplified. So who knows? Uh, I'm sure Troy and them would go like, that ain't never going to happen. And I'm sure some CROs um, out there are going like, that's never going to happen. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are going like, yes, it would be easier to simplify it understand the rules, trying to make a call on the range instead of trying to get that I got you moment uh, on the range. So that's what I'm going to eliminate. Okay. Yeah, it, it, there are a lot of rules, and reading through it, it takes quite a while. Yeah, it's like reading LSAT, you know, trying to become an attorney. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind, of, kind of bizarre. So how are we doing on time? I'm doing fine. How are you? Oh, look, I've got about 15 more minutes. I hope this is not boring to your, to your... No, no, this is awesome. Um, I'm trying to... Now, you had something, um, your point number 11. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to add a little commentary to it. If the space allows, we should invite every sponsor to show up and allow everyone to view new products at the major matches. This should be a benefit to them for being a major sponsor. The only additional cost for them is the cost of their own tent and tables. They spend money in advertising online and in front site, meaning the USPSA magazine. Now, I've made mention that I think it would be interesting. Like, I'll use Carry Optics Nationals because it's so popular. You could even say you could combine Carry Optics and Open into a national championship and run it um, I used SHOT Show, like right before, right after SHOT Show, where every sponsor is there. You could turn it into a huge media event. 
Um, I know that nobody likes it because, well, people are already there for a week for SHOT Show. They don't want to be there another week or a week prior or whatever. But I feel like there's something there. There's a way to turn it into a bigger media event, get more coverage, get the sponsors out there more, and just help the sport and the organization. Exactly. And so you're exactly right. And so for me is that I feel um, that over the years, I mean, back in the day, back in the, back in the 80s, we would have 30, 40, uh, um, you know, vendors show up. I mean, wow. the, the tent would be completely full. And so uh, so the problem is, as time went on, the vendors are going like, hey, I, I, I want to um, come back, um, you know, to the nationals, but I, you just can't afford it. Because USPSA said, okay, the first year you were, um, we charged you, you know, $10 a table. And that $10 became, you know, $40 a table. Next thing you know, they're paying $500 a table. Next thing you know, they're paying $1,000, okay, to be able to rent the space out. I was going like, and you want to know why we don't have any sponsors show up over the years, okay? It's because they have spent, they have outspent their, you know, their budget and travel money just to come and show their products. And their products may not be a viable product. They may be a startup company. And so with that startup company, I, if we have the room for it uh, at that facility, we should invite as many people as that want to come and, sh and show up. And there should be an open bay there, okay, for those companies to be able to go over and showcase their product, okay? So, you know, essentially people come to the matches to be entertained, okay? Not only to shoot, but they need to be entertained in many other ways. So um, I, I felt that if we have commitment to 25, you know, 25 um, vendors that go like, yeah, we would love to come. Yeah, but we're not paying that kind of money. The USPSA wants to wants to spend, Todd. I was going like, do you spend money in front side? Yeah, we, we, we spend 20 grand a year with you guys. Going like, you are more than welcome to come, sir. Only thing I asked is, is that if we buy a tent, okay, that I need those vendors to be able to split the cost of that tent, okay? So a tent comes in and may cost us five to $7,000 for a tent size to be able to put 30 or 40 vendors in. Or they just, we might just bring their own tents. But we should invite those industry people to come, okay, with open arms because we want to build relationships is what we want to do, not turn people away. Well, and and I think, too, I think a lot, you'd get a lot of vendors in that regard because now here's an opportunity for higher level shooters to look at their products, maybe give them some feedback and make it a better product, which then helps their company long term as well as the shooting community right it don't it don't have to be an experienced shooter it could be somebody who um you know how many people I know get into the shooting sports that came from other recreational shooting you know mm -hmm. other rec recreational shooting sports that they're like yeah we do that in this game and you guys don't do that over here and they're like wow the guy goes well that's a great idea and next thing you know he's you know He's making a product or, you know, he started a new, a new company with it. So uh, it's not necessarily an experienced shooter, but it does give a chance for the industry to be able to listen to their customers. And that is more important than anything uh, in this business is to listen to your customers and tell them uh, or show them what you have uh, and what they may or may not um, want to see in their product or you know how many times i've gone to you know gone to a guy and go like yeah man i was you know i really like your product right here but you know if you cut this edge off and you make this a little easier it feels good in my hands or 
you know, these hearing protection you got, I mean, uh, you know, they really hurt the top of my head. And it's kind of like, yeah, I've heard that from other customers online, but I didn't know it was coming from Utah. I don't want to go, yeah. So next thing you know, they start making a, a new band for, you know, for, um, you know, for hearing protection. I mean, it's just, it's just one of thousands of things that I have, you know, um, you know, in passing give to, you know, companies over the years and uh, turn around and they have made those corrections and uh, increased their sales along the way. Not that I want any money from it or anything from it, but, you know, something shows up in my, I probably get a hundred things show up in my front door from vendors a year, you know, every year that show up. I mean, it might be a little trinket, might be a little, you know, I got something from a vendor the other day, sent me something, said, how you need to try this in your gun. I went, okay, well, I'm heading to range after I finish for you to go try it. So it's, um, you know, and then I give them feedback. I mean, I think I, I got a bunch of new bags that uh, just came in, some absorbent bags. I got to do some testing mm. for a company. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we are here to help everyone. And that's my biggest, my biggest key that I have on going on. <laughs> well, I, that's I mean, I'm just, I'm, I am, I'm just a little pissed about everything, you know, and it's kind of like, these are simple things that should have been done decades ago, years ago. But we got personalities out there that don't allow that to happen. And we got, you know, we got personalities within the organization that sometimes run people off, even run even run yeah. industry people off. So it's kind of like, why? You know, why, why, why do you want to do that? Right. So. Well, we covered everything I wanted to talk about, except for one thing. And it's a it's a story. Uh, I'm trying to confirm that it's true. And if so, I'd like to hear the story. I heard you were asked to shoot a snake by an RO one time. I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be um, um, Shannon, uh, Shannon Smith down in uh, down in um, Florida. Okay. So we were uh, at, F, uh, at Frank Garcia's at Universal Shooting Academy down there. So we were holding, I think the national championship was being held. I think so. I think it was the nationals. Mm. And so we, um, there's, there's this one bay um, there that's kind of wooded. And it's the only bay that's actually got, you know, bushes and trees and stuff in it that are on there. And I, I come walking by and I'm getting ready to walk in the, in the, in the stage there. And I look and I went, you got to be kidding me. That is the biggest rattlesnake I think I've ever seen. So Ooh. the thing is, it's between us and the shooters that are in the bay down range. And this rattlesnake, he's six foot long now. So whoa. I came, I came down and I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I mean, this, this thing is, he is moving. I mean, he doesn't like where he's at. He obviously, he'd come out of the woods and he's trying to get somewhere. Now, of course, we don't want this thing to bite anybody. And so, um, so Shannon, um, um, I, I holler at the, at the CRO and the stage beside it. I'm going like, Hey, we have a big snake over here. We need to clear the range. And, and, uh, and we hollered at the, at the group. Um, it was down in, uh, down in the, in that one bay. It's going like, Hey, we need to clear this range out. We got a snake here that we need to do something with. So Shannon comes up and he goes, what, what Todd? We'll shoot the son of a bitch. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll and so, um, so now this snake is moving and I mean, he's, he's wanting to come across the road and we didn't want that to happen. We wanted to get him before he got out of there. And, uh, one thing led to another, um, I was shooting with a single stack and I, I, had, I did have my single stack on gun with me and, um, so the snake came out. We cleared both ranges, made sure everything was safe. Shannon said, Shannon Smith, if you ever want to get uh, play a joke on him, 
do not play a joke on him with a fake snake and put it anywhere near him because he will he will run his mother over to get away from a snake. <laughs> he's going to like, so we backed everybody up with a bunch of film and had a bunch of Filipinos and everybody was there and uh, some guys from South America and they all put the camera on there and I shot the snake and we pulled him out and um, and I think I ended up stretching him out and there's a picture down at Universal down there with me holding it and it's about uh, about six foot long. And Frank Garcia had been living down there his whole life. And he goes, Todd, let me tell you something. I've lived down here my entire life on this range, and that is the biggest rattlesnake that I've ever seen in my entire life. So, uh, true story. Uh, and that's, um, and I think Manny Bragg actually got the um, got the rattlers off. I think the rattlers were around. He was around. They figure around eleven or twelve years old. Rattlesnake was though. So, uh, so that's my wow. snake story. That's all I got to say. It's <laughs> <laughs> all I got to say about that. <laughs> all right yep so um i am ready to head out to the range here and uh do a little practice with my my lo pistol here and so um, that's what i'm gonna do so dave i enjoyed chatting enjoy. with you man. I, I know Me i got too. i know the code of conduct thing people got my you know getting a little crazy about but i wouldn't get wrapped around the actual about it uh, nobody should get it wrapped around the actual about that one thing and um and it may not even get approved. It may not even get put through. I mean, because I have, think about it. I have no control of what the um, the board wants to do. I mean, as far as agenda wise, I can approach it. I can tell them what I like to see, but it's going to take the members to be able to contact their next president. I'm not sure who that's going to be. It could be, uh, it could be me, it could be any of the other seven guys are out there. And uh, they're as qualified as I am. Um, it, they're good folks. And so I wish everybody uh, the best. I know that you wanted to do a round table, um, I think next month or something. And I think I'm going to be at area yeah. four. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make that, but I'm flying that day and I'm shooting a match and then I have to do, um, I have to do another event. So I'm not going to be able to make that sixth one with you unless you change the date on it somehow. Okay. So, but I'm sure that some of the, I'm sure that, that a lot of the um, presidents that are running, they have not put agenda out. They have not put any type of agenda out. I'm sure they're going, like, yeah, I was going to do the exactly same thing Todd was going to do. Well, good, put it out. And I hope that if you don't vote for me, vote for someone who's going to vote for change um, and change this organization to get this ship turned around um, and let's make, make this thing a, a, a corporation that's going to be viral. Um, it's going to, going to make, make uh, our members happy and, and increase our membership across the board and, and be professional and have some fun. Absolutely. And again, thank you for your time, Todd. It's been a wonderful conversation. I got it. I will see you soon. Good luck with All it. All right. Enjoy your shooting. You got it, brother. Take care. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.